Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and in today's program we have a rather different focus. We discuss investing in theatre. I talk to leading West End producer Daffid Rogers of Daffid Rogers and David Pugh Limited, the team behind Art, the play What I Wrote, Equus with Daniel Radcliffe and God of Carnage. And our paid company interview is with me and my dad, Terence Frisbee, about the project we're currently working on, Kisses on a Postcard. More on that later. First, though, it's disclaimer time. Nothing you hear in this program constitutes advice to buy or sell anything, nor is it an invitation to invest. What you hear is for information and educational purposes only, and is just an expression of my or my guest's opinion. Always consult a financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com Okay, I'm sitting now with Daffid Rogers. Daffid is one half of Daffid Rogers and David Pugh Limited. Among their many theatrical credits are art, uh, which ran for how many years, Daffid? Eight and a half years in the West End. Eight and a half years in the West End. The play, what I wrote, uh, the um, version of Equus with Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter. And uh, currently they have on in the West End... God of Carnage and Brief Encounter. God of Carnage and Brief Encounter. There you go. Daffid, welcome to the show. Um, tell us first, what, what would you say, what are the biggest challenges to a, to a theatrical producer at the moment? What are the biggest problems you face? I think the biggest problems is probably the problem that has always existed. It's just it seems to get tougher and tougher um, in this climate at the moment. Is, um, is getting shows that make financial sense and that people want to come and see and getting, getting their money back on a show, really. Is there, a, is there a, re- a, a ratio? I mean, you, you produce more drama and comedy. You don't produce musicals. Um, am I right in saying, is, is there a ratio of, of shows that go on uh, in the West End that are financially successful and, and those that fail? Is it two in ten succeed or something like that? Uh, I think those are the figures that I've heard. Um, I, like, I like the way of turning it around that two in ten succeed rather than eight out of ten fail. Um, I think there's a, those are the scary statistics that, that people send, send out. Um, however, what I would say is, of our shows, of course, our statistics, <laughs> I would say that, but our statistics are nowhere near those sort of figures. Um, they're probably two out of ten don't succeed. Um, but I think it's generally been, been the case that the statistics of shows making money or losing money has probably hasn't changed. It's just how quickly we can react to audiences changing and also differentiation in prices and that sort of thing. I mean, theatre has always been seen as as an expensive thing and perhaps a thing of the middle class and whatever, which is not necessarily the case. Um, I mean, what we've suffered from as a commercial producer in the last five or so years has been something like the National Theatre doing a travel X £10 season. Um, it's very difficult to compete against that. You know, it was bad enough when we didn't receive government subsidy, but then for a commercial company like Travelex to then 
mean that my parents, who before bought a ticket at £32.50 or something to go to the National, can now get that same ticket for £10. It just means that they go to the National a lot more, mm-hmm. which means that we've got to do more in the commercial sector who don't have those safety nets in order to get the audience in. What I will say that, um, that, that mitigates that is that uh, people who work in the commercial sector are a lot brighter and more imaginative than people who work in the state sector. So as a consequence, you've got bigger brains and you can outwit them. Well, but I, d- I do agree. It makes it very we have, hard. We, have, we do have to work, work a lot harder now to, to just make that happen. And also, what I, this is one of my soap opera, my soap, soap opera, this is my soapbox that I stand on, is that the West End... And in general, it's not just the West End. We've seen it in like the airline industry that it's become a discount market. It's that now people do wait. They wait for the discounts. Um, and you can pretty much get a West End show, you know, if not for half price, for less than that. Um, and whereas before people used to sort of go to their leading airline and buy a ticket to New York or whatever, now as consumers, I mean, I'm exactly the same, I'll go on and look for the best price I can get off the internet or something like that. And theatre's very much become like that, in that often theatre producers in the West End put their ticket price at a level from which they can discount, rather than setting it at a level where they think people can afford the tickets. And I wish we could almost go back to the, to the old days where there were no discounts and it's basically you paid the price of the ticket, but we'll never get back there now. Um, your biggest hit was art, am I right in saying? Which ran for eight Financially, and a half years. Financially, yes. And, and what, how, what kind of levels did... Uh, uh, what, how much money did investors make on that? Um, art, I looked it up just before we spoke, so I'm going to sound like I, I have these at the tips of my fingers, but it was 636% return on their investment. Um... Art, just to give a little bit of background on that, Art um, was capitalised at 250000 It's now sort of 11 years ago that that happened. Whereas God of Carnage, um, which was the next play that we did, it wasn't her next play of Yasmina Razor, but it was the next one that David and I produced, God of Carnage. And it's the same team, I should just it's add. It's the same team. It's, mm. it's actually got four actors instead of three, That's a, and one set. So it should be fairly similar, but whereas Art was 250000 We've just capitalised God of Carnage at 525000 So your costs have doubled? They have. Yes, I'm trying to work that. Yes, yeah, absolutely, they have yeah. more or less doubled. Um, whereas I don't think inflation and that sort of thing... I mean, God of Carnage is an expensive play. I should put a caveat on that, though, that we just um, recouped about two weeks ago, so that was six weeks of, after opening night. That's very good. It is. It's, it was unbelievable. It was actually... Art was, was nine weeks... Um, so with um, God of Carnage it's been six weeks but of course ticket prices have gone up I think are open to a ticket price of 27.50 whereas God of Carnage now is 47.50 so it's all stayed kind of current um, proportionally but um, but um, sorry Art opened at the Wyndham's Theatre which was 750 seats whereas God of Carnage is at the Gilgood which is about 940 seats What about... um uh, the uh, Equus, what was that capitalised at? That was actually capitalised at 700,000, which I think, I don't have the full statistics, somebody will probably tell me I'm wrong, but I think it was the most expensive play ever um, at 700,000. Not in Broadway terms, of course, their budgets are and much larger. You made money on Equus, did you? We did, we recouped that in, again, nine weeks. And how long did the show run for? That was a 16-week run. It was always okay. because it was Daniel Radcliffe between his Harry Potter films. Yeah. Um, that was always a limited engagement. But, I mean, <clears throat> some people thought that we were mad putting on a £700,000 play with a limited engagement of 16 weeks. Um, it actually paid back in nine 
um, and so our investors got a bit of profit. And now it's, of course, in the autumn, it's going to New York. Okay. Um, the thing with plays, from an investment point of view, is it's not only the initial run that people should look at, it's all the spin-offs from that. And, of course, if, if you have something like art, which paid back in its first cast, it then had 26 further casts in London in eight and a half years. Mm -hmm. The same thing as, as musicals, you know, with um, things like Cats at mm -hmm. 22 or, or whatever years. Um, but also there's, there's then the foreign rights, of course, America being the biggest, Canada, Australia, um, and sometimes you participate on new plays um, with foreign language rights, um, as in things like, um, you know, when you put on a French play here. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's where the real money's made. In the spin-offs? Pretty much, yes. Normally, you can't, of course, say that in art because art yeah. um, stayed in the West End. But on something like God of Carnage, which has been a limited 14-week run, of course, then the, the London investors participate in New York, in Australia, mm. in all those future productions. The, the problem is about with the spin-offs telling investors is that they can be anything and nothing. Absolutely. And sometimes, of course, they're your safety net. Yeah. Um, they're either the bonus, as they are in Sound Like God of Carnage, or with a play that we did um, called Heroes, um, which got back 80% of its money, um, it's the subsidiaries that we're hoping to, to get back the 20% and, and make sure that that recoups. Mm -hmm. um, so that those can be used in, in various different ways, as either bonus or, or safety net, or absolutely nothing at all. I like the uh, story about Gone with the Wind, that it grossed more in DVD sales than it did at the box office. And uh, the wonderful thing about that is that DVD technology hadn't even been invented when the original investors put money into Gone with the Wind. That's why people should go into theatre right now, for, <laughs> for whatever they spend. And it's actually wonderful in the, um, the language now of subsidiary rights. It has just become more and more complicated. I think for those very reasons that technology, it's almost like any form of media in the universe is now sort of lines in, in commercial contracts so that you don't miss out on any of those future sales of anything. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, I mean, as you know, we're putting on this production of Kisses on a Postcard, which we've capitalised at, at two and a half million. Uh, which is considerably more than the 700,000 you needed for Harry Potter. The, the reason for that is we've got a much... It's a musical, there's a of cast course. of 40. And, but of that two and a half million, uh, a million is contingency and reserve money. When you put on Harry... Uh, when you put on Harry Potter... The Harry when you Potter put on show. Equus for 700 yeah. grand, how much of that... Was that the... Did you have some contingency and reserve oh, money? Absolutely, and absolutely. Was that in addition to the 700,000? No, no, that was part, part of the capitalisation. Um... I'm just trying to remember it back now. I think it was about 150 of that um, would have been contingency. Okay. I mean, advertising now in the West End is a huge portion of your budget. You know, I mean, every producer... It's a has, third of ours. That's about the right figure. Okay. Um, it normally is about a third. Um, but again, it depends... You know, if you've got a massive star and you get glorious reviews, mm -hmm. you can then that's where you can save your money. Yeah. You can just take out a, a couple of ads rather than every week um, telling everybody what wonderful reviews you got and the big star that's in it. Um, so in a way, advertising is either there to be... It's, it's almost the same as, as contingency in that it's a figure in the budget which you'll either try and save or you'll spend it and you might spend more, depending on how you need it. And if you were to invest in a show, if you were talking to an investor and you were giving them investment advice and they said, I want to invest in, in theatre, what, what sort of things should they be looking at when they make an investment? 
I think, I think my biggest advice um, is the advice that I always give a new investor is never invest more than you're prepared to lose. Um, I always look at it as I do with, with horse racing. I'm not a professional gambler. Um, it's, it's not something that I know necessarily that much about. So when I put money on a, on a horse race, like say the Grand National, it's only to heighten my pleasure of watching the Grand National. And in a way, with, with investing in, in theatre productions, it heightens, it heightens, if you enjoy theatre and you enjoy investment and you enjoy risk and all of those sort of things, you can do very, very well out of theatre. You, of course, can lose it all. And that's really what you've got to look at. You don't want to put, the, put your house on a theatre show. Um, as a producer, I never would. Um, and yet we always think, of course we always think, or else we wouldn't produce a show that is going to make money. But there are those shows that don't make money um, and just disappear without a trace. Um, the other thing that I, w I would say to potential investors is, apart from not investing too much, is invest, rather than look at trying to do the job of a theatre producer and, and work out which shows are going to make it and which ones aren't. Again, to use the analogy of, of horse racing, I would bet on a stable or a trainer more than I would on a specific horse within a specific race. So I would say, if, if you're a new investor, look at the track records of the producers and that sort of thing, so that they can have a look and, and see what the potential is. And also, because we can all do, and I shouldn't really say this in public, but you can generally make the figures on a show work, um, or look as though they're going to work. Um, so that an investor can look at them and go, God, I tell you, if, if they play to 60%, I'm going to make a fortune. And if it sells out, I can go and live in, in the Bahamas. Um, we can generally all do that, that with our figures, but what, what you've got to be careful of is A, the downside, and B, the middle ground. That's where a producer really shows their mettle, is the runaway smash hits are something that we all dream about and something that almost anybody can produce once it's happened. However, the middle ground is, is the, the bit that petrifies a producer. Um, and also, they always say, rather than... There's two major decisions for a producer to take in life. One is what shows to put on, and two is when to pull them off. And that's the most difficult decision that a producer... Because you've put your life and soul into a project. Um, and if it's teetering on the edge, you've got to know when to pull it off. If you leave a, uh, a show that's losing money on, you can eat away all the profit that you've made when the show was making money. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's absolutely the case. And it's a, it's a trap that is very easy to fall into because you always hope there's going to be an upturn. Of course you do. That's what, that's what you're putting your money into advertising and marketing for. There's also the thing of as long as the show is on, then people are making money out of it. But it's not necessarily the investors and it's not necessarily the producers. Um, so you get a lot of advice as a producer from people who are on fees who are saying, yes, I think, I think in the next six weeks it's all going to change and it's all going to be an upturn. And you have to learn as a producer what advice you take and when and who you, who you trust on that and also gut instinct, experience, um, and is what, what is happening because you basically have to hold on. You can lose a hell of a lot of money very quickly in mm -hmm. theatre. Um, you can also make that money. It can turn around. But the cases of turning around shows are fewer than the ones who don't turn around. Um, and therefore you just have to know that as a producer and sometimes act more with your head than your heart. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when you invest in any company, you're, you're kind of told two things. There are two, two rules. One, look at the management. 
to look at the uh, at the product. Now, you've basically what you've described there is look at the management, look at their track record. How many of your investors actually read the script? None. We were, we don't we don't send we we send a prospectus. We don't send them the script. I mean, unless we, of course, we're doing something like Equus, which was a revival where they mm. could have picked up an old script, but it was before we'd done any of the work on it. Um, we wouldn't actually send out... Our if I was an investor and I said, I'm interested in investing in this daffid, can I see a script? Would you send me a script? No. I wouldn't send you a script, not for any hidden agenda on that, but it would probably be too early to send you the script. Um, putting on a theatre show is a, is a matter of process, and therefore... What we have is we wouldn't have had the, the work in the rehearsal room. Um, on something like, say, let's say, God of Carnage, where the very first translation that we decided to put the, the play on was a very rough translation. It was actually before Christopher Hampton had done his first translation of the piece. Um, and therefore, to send you the script at that point, it would have felt to you very wooden, very leaden, and actually not very funny. What we knew um, from Yasmina's writing is perhaps the potential of it. Mm -hmm. We'd read the very first script of art, the literal translation of that, and knew what the finished product was. Um, to use your analogy of sort of mining or, or gold or, or oil or whatever, it might be if you're asked to, as a, a novice, if I said to you, well, can I see a sample of it? And you showed me something that looked like a piece of stone. And you go, yes, but that's going to turn into something really shiny and glorious, <laughs> I'd be going, yeah, but it looks like a stone. And you go, yeah, but honestly, inside there is something beautiful and something well, that... Well, do you know value. what, Daffod, there are plenty of mining lunches with geologists walking around with chunks of rock going, cool, look at this. <laughs> look at that and a load of baffled investors Absolutely. looking at the pieces of rock. <laughs> looking at them. Perhaps we ought to start sending out the scripts. But no, <laughs> it, is, it is something with the script where... And, of course, there's more... I mean, the script is only part of the product, the actors are part of it and the Absolutely. director... Absolutely. And so what we give is the best information at that point to our investors. Um, we give them the cast as it stands at that point. We give them the creative team who, of course, are the ones who, now so you <laughs> use a mining analogy, who, who sit there and break up the stone and polish it and, and end up with the end product. Um, and it's all of those factors. To actually sit there and read a script is something... I'm not sure that I could do that necessarily. I was once in Charlie's Aunt, uh, playing Lord Fancourt Babley in my younger days, and Charlie's Aunt is regarded as the greatest farce ever written. And I read it, and I remember thinking, this is, what's so good about this? And I, I seriously didn't want to do it, and everyone was just going, just do it, just do it. And we went into rehearsals, and I was still thinking, this is just, this is dross. And then we did it, on the first night, we got it in front of an audience, and it was it was like walking on air. It was absolutely glorious. And I'm a you know I'm a comedian. I'm I'm used to reading scripts, and I didn't see it. So what but chance does a punter but have? The, but that's the thing with, with Chai's arms. To send a script, they wouldn't have seen anything. But without putting your performance into it, <laughs> you know, I've seen some productions. I know when it was Zahn down to the writing, and I know it was down to the performance. <laughs> we, we did a production of Chai's arms actually last year, and um, it was a touring production, and. Um, just made its money back. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Who played Lord Fancourt Babley? Uh, Stephen Tompkinson. Okay. I would imagine he was maybe a little old, but very good. Very good. Very good. Mm. It was actually a very good production. Um, talking about the commerciality on the road is a whole mm -hmm. different topic. Do you tour a lot of shows? I didn't realise you... We tour a lot of shows. Um, Do you make more money on tour or in the West End? 
it's difficult to put it in, in proportions of making money. There, there is a lot of money to be made on the road. I mean, we, t- we toured um, the Blues Brothers right. um, for 15 years. And that was, A, it, to us, it was bread and butter money to keep the, the office going because it was week in, week out. Yeah. Um, but also from an investment point of view, it was week in, week out solid. How much did your investors make on that? I'm just trying to think, Max. We, we haven't done a production of the Blues Brothers for about four years. Um, I would, I'd hate to hazard a guess at that, but it really was. Because the wonderful thing about... It was several hundred percent on that. Oh, original. several hundred percent, because yeah. it was 15 years of touring. Yeah. Um, it also came into the West End, dipped in and dipped out for seasons in the West End three or four times. Um, again, making money, but not sitting in the West End. Because there are different markets. There's very much different different audience. Next autumn, we're actually going to be touring a, a production of Calendar Girls, um, adapted by Tim Firth, who wrote the film. Um, and again, that's a title that we don't know at the moment. It might be West End, mm-hmm. or it might just be a title for the road. We did Rebecca with um, Nigel Havers, which grossed over five million over 38 weeks which was probably the most successful, actually I think it is, the most successful play ever on the road. Now, to gross five million in 38 weeks in the West End, you'd never do it. You right. can't compare the two. Um, Nigel Havers is a huge name on the road. Rebecca is a huge title. The two together was just absolutely, the catalyst went on, bang. It was, it was a huge commercial hit. Would we have brought it? We didn't actually have the West End rights. Would we have brought it into into the West End? I don't know, but they would have, we wouldn't have brought it in purely for commercial reasons. It was designed for the road, and it worked on the mm-hmm. road. There are some producers that put their own money into shows, and in fact, I don't think they rely on on backers or investors okay. or angels. I think Cameron Mackintosh works like that. Yeah, I think Bill Kenry does. Do you ever? Invest David Pugh and David Rogers' money, or you? you we, we have no money. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know you're a much smaller yeah. production house than they are. But also, I, I, I say that in jest that we have no money, but it's actually the truth, and it's always been the case. So therefore, we've never had that moment of luxury of, oh, I've got three million sitting in the bank. Shall I put that into the next show? We've always been producers having not having that luxury, who've always used investors. We have. A pool uh, on pretty much all our productions, they pretty much come out the same. That we have about 86 investors that range from little old ladies to big corporations who put in, you know, hundreds of thousands to little old ladies, our smallest units, um, are three and a half thousand. Now, some of those ladies, um, I use that term very loosely, (laughs) um, have um, half units, so 1750. So, on something like Equus. You know, they're, they're sitting there reading the prospectus as much as the corporations mm-hmm. are and, and putting in um, their money. But no, we, we've never put in our own money because you can, you can make and you can lose. And it's all about cash flow as well. It's a bit like spread betting. Our mm. investors who've actually put money into all our shows are way ahead financially. Mm-hmm. The ones who've actually read the prospectus and picked and choose and gone, oh, that one's a winner. Oh, I don't think that one stands a chance. I mean, something, for example, something like The Play What I Wrote, with two unknown comedians at that point, the right size, um, who would have known? But that was actually that, you know, the investors got 150% return on that. Um, Something like, I'm trying to think, something like Heroes, with, you know, a Adapted by Tom Stoppard, a cast of three, with Ken Stott, Richard Griffiths, and John Hurt, 
one set in the West End. Looked like another art. Could have looked like another art. All of that going for it. Um, and as I said before, it's got 80% of its money back. Um, so people who pick and choose on our productions perhaps aren't as far ahead as the ones who put £1,000 into everything. They're the winners. That's a common thing with investing. It's proven time and time again that... Uh Rather than try and pick stocks, if you just invest in general trends and general indices, you will often the stock pickers underperform just the the people who blanket I'm sure invest. That's correct. I'm sure. I'm sure, and, and I'm sure there's exceptions to that. Yeah. Um, who are the Who are the ones who the lucky ones? Know, the lucky ones, and also <laughs> no, the great students. Yeah. The great students, but also because of something like art, Dave and I have had investors who've stuck with us through thick and thin. And pretty much because of art, they're going to they're going to be way ahead. It's also you know Cameron Mackintosh, the investors who first came into him with Cats all those many moons ago, um, they're going to be way ahead as well. And so again, it's going back to to picking your stable, picking your your producer, and sticking with them really. Let me ask you another question. You mentioned you have some you know small old lady investors. What about uh, and then you mentioned some corporations. What kind of corporations put money in? Is this as a, some kind of tax loss vehicle or a entertainment budget or something um, like that? Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, most of them, I have to say, are within the entertainment business. However, we have some sort of high, high net worth individuals who either they, they love theatre or their wives love theatre or their families love theatre or their husbands love theatre. Um, and... They love sort of, you know, taking a punt on something. So it's a whole mismatch of things. But most of, you know, the big corporations that we have in are ones who want to sort of taking a show to America or something like that. So we have some, some big American corporations and theatre owners over there who want to sort of be in at a seed level. I see. Um, so that hopefully they'll have a lean on the project when it comes to America. And it's sort of a network of... But we also have so, some corporations who are absolutely nothing to do with theatre but just enjoy the whole process of it. And, and what they're it, writing has... off to tax, I don't know. <laughs> I don't ask. Has, has it, uh, has it uh, ever happened that you've decided you're going to put a production on and uh, you've got your cast and your theatre and then you've failed to raise the capital? No. Touching wood here, turning around spitting uh, and all those other things. No, it hasn't happened. Um, what does... it's, a, it's a fatal mistake to, to attempt to do that without being fully capitalised, isn't it? You should it? never do it. Never, ever, ever. Because at the end of the day, as producer, you're responsible. It's one of the golden rules that you should never do it. I mean, luckily David and I are in a position with our investors, and only because of our investors, that we can capitalise projects on our own. Of course, when you're sort of starting out or, or whatever, you co-produce, you, you take money wherever you can, and you raise as much as you can. But it's, it is one of the golden rules as a producer, but also as an investor to check that all the capitalisation is in. Mm -hmm. And there are some investors, actually, who say that they always want to be the last one in. Let me ask you another question, and this is, a, this is a general comment on the state of the West End at the moment. Every musical, uh, of the ten most successful shows in the West End, in terms of the time that they've run for, currently running, nine are musicals. And every musical that's coming to the West... And the, the one exception, by the way, is The Mousetrap. Every musical that's coming into the West End is either something that has some kind of brand awareness, uh, like the Dirty Dancing 
thing. Or it is a revival of a famous old musical like Oliver and the Sound of Music, Chitty Bang Bang, whichever one it is. Or it's a jukebox musical. In other words, it's a musical about ABBA or a musical about Queen, whatever it is. Do you not think there's a craving for something original? Absolutely. No, I would absolutely say that. Um, however, the way that the West End is in the economics is you need to get the coach party business. You need to get... And it's a frustrating as a producer within the West End, of course it is. Um, and David and I are lucky being independent producers that we can produce the things that we have a passion about um, and the things that we want to do. However, at the moment, and I'm sure that you can look at trends o over decades and centuries in theatre, we're in a trend at the moment where you're absolutely right. I, I have no answer to that, um, except perhaps Hairspray. Was that...? Yeah, it was a famous film. You're absolutely right. Damn. Um, yeah, I have no, no answer to that. I would love to see an original musical in the West End that really works. I mean, there's things like Avenue Q, there's Into the Hoods at the uh, moment. Uh, Avenue Q is original. Yeah, and Into the Hoods. Is that one of yours? No, that's not. Right. That's um, Phil McIntyre. But again, um, that's original, and I went to see it a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, how refreshing to actually see something mm -hmm. which is groundbreaking in the West End. Um, but yes, I mean, David and I would, would love one day to produce a musical, but at this point, we've done the Blues Brothers on, on the road and, and the thing, but it, that was probably one of the forerunners of what the you Duke now... The musical, yeah. Well, actually, uh, based on a film and a jukebox yeah. musical. So <laughs> it was kind of, we, we went for the safe bet on that and put the yeah. two together and, and struck gold. But, um, but yes, no, we would love to do a, um, an original musical. I suppose I'm thinking, I'm now to, I'm racking my brain if there is one out there. Lord of the Rings again was... Based on a book and, and a film. I think the fact that The Lord of the Rings was the most expensive musical of all time and the fact that it's coming off uh, this summer, I believe, and so it will have lost money. It will probably make money eventually. lost everything. Oh, uh, really? I, don't, I, I mean, I would hate okay. to speak for another producer, but to make back... Twelve and a half million. Twelve and a half million. But, I mean, in, maybe on tour it'll make... future productions, it's going to take a long time to okay. make back twelve and a half million. Okay, well that it's lost everything then, to me, signals the top of that particular wave of revivals, brand awareness, jukebox musicals. I think we're moving into a new era. No, but luckily, with a, with a cynical smile on my face um, and a sense of irony about it, luckily we have the BBC, so that licence... Um, Jerry Springer, yeah. that was an original musical. Jerry Springer it was, absolutely. Yeah. But it lost money. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> going to say it's somebody else's show. I don't want to speak for them. But no, yes, it did lose money. It did, unfortunately, because again, it was groundbreaking. Whatever anybody thinks of, of these particular things, and, and in a way, you know, something like Gone with the Wind, which I, I hope can turn around. They've got a big job to turn it around. Has it already opened? Gone with the Wind? Yeah. Yes. And is it, it's not making money? Uh, not yet. Um, and the reviews are not probably what there we what go. They More it evidence to be. of my theory of Your the end theory. of the cycle. Absolutely, and perhaps you're right, and perhaps it's it needs. But however, you could then say Oliver, which is probably the next major one to open with BBC subsidy, of course, um, <laughs> is going to make millions. It can't fail to make millions. Um, Sound of Music was the same. Um, even Greece. Um, Oliver is brilliant, though. It is a brilliant musical. Absolutely. 
And uh, the next Oliver is, of course... But does it, but does it need course, BBC subsidy? No, it doesn't, and they've cheated. <laughs> you know, we went to the BBC and we said, we've got a new musical, Kisses on a Postcard, about kids. How about doing There's Something About Maria for Kids? And they went, no. No. And then why, a year later they? they do There's Something About Maria for Kids. Absolutely. With well, Oliver, and absolutely. Not us. <laughs> no, I, I again think is I, I you don't get me on the soapbox. But wouldn't it be lovely if the BBC had said that some of that money went to went to kids' charities or something? Yeah, and and also that the BBC didn't leave the project at the end of the TV program. That a percentage of the profits from the show wouldn't it be lovely if that went back in? to children original, in need or something. Yeah, original programme making or original theatre production. Absolutely. There we go. Daffid, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, if any of our listeners want to uh, invest in Daffid Rogers and David Pugh Productions, do you want to give out some information about how absolutely, they can do so? Absolutely. Um, probably the best way is, to, is just to um, email us at dpl at davidpughltd.com. Spell Pugh. P-U-G-H. So give that give that out once again. So it's dpl at davidpughltd.com. And that's david, D-A-V-I-D. <laughs> that was a difficult word. P-U-G-H-L-T-D.com. Great. Daffod Rogers, thank you very much. Thank you, Donald. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Okay, I'm on the phone now to Michael Hampton. Michael Hampton is in Hong Kong. I'm in London, as always. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's a bright and uh, nice day here in Hong Kong. Oh, good. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. It's pitch black here in London. It's the middle of the night. Now, (laughs) in today's program, we're going to turn things on their head a bit. Michael's going to ask the questions, and I'm going to answer them. And Michael is going to ask the questions about the West End You're musical to Commodity that many Watch of you Radio know with Dominic I am Frisbee. working on. Mike, over to you. I will just say, when you ask the questions, d- don't pull any punches. Just uh, ask the same questions that you'd ask any company that you were thinking about investing in. Right. Well, um, I don't know a lot about West End musicals. I know very little indeed, but I have seen, uh, as many have, a very interesting film uh, some years ago called The Producers. And this basically uh, was a story of some people who raised more money than they needed uh, on the theory that the, sh- the, the show would fail and uh, everyone would see it fail and they could keep the money because... Uh, the show was a failure. And I think that was a plausible story because a lot of people have heard, you know, West End shows don't make money. So why would anybody consider investing in such a risky venture? Well, (laughs) the first thing is, uh, it is extremely risky and you can lose all your money if you put it into a theatrical venture. It's a famous way of losing your money. In fact, it's such a famous way of losing your money, that's how that film came about. The irony, of course, is that film and the pl- and the musical that was derived from that film both made a great deal of money. There's no way of knowing what the exact statistic is because producers don't disclose this type of information. But it is said that the majority of shows lose money. However... 
There was a report in the late 1990s called the Wyndham Report, and the findings of that report haven't changed. And the report showed what a huge net earner for the UK West End Theatre is. It's as big as the entire UK advertising industry. It's as big as the high, the entire UK accountancy industry. And it's as big as the entire UK management consultancy industry. It's bigger than our film and TV industry. The global earnings of the most successful British shows rival those of Hollywood blockbusters. And fortunes can be made in the West End. Indeed, fortunes have been made. Uh, Andrew uh, Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh are both uh, high up the Sunday Times richest list. So, you know, even though people can lose money, people can also make fortunes. Our dad's most famous play, this project, Kisses on a Postcard, was written by my dad, Terence Frisbee, uh, or rather the book was written by my dad. And his most famous play is a play called There's a Girl in My Soup, which in the 60s became the longest running comedy in the history of the West End. Now, if you combine the earnings that the, the run in the West End made, the uh, productions abroad and the film, uh, for every pound you put into There's a Girl in My Soup, you made £60 back. Now, that's a huge return. That's like a you know some distant mining explorer striking gold in, in Timbuktu. You know, it's those kind of returns. So when you strike gold, you strike gold. Well, that's, that's obvious that such a big industry is generating some real profit for somebody or it wouldn't continue. And you've mentioned, too... Uh, giants of uh, the West End, uh, Cameron McIntosh and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. What's their secret? Well, the first thing is I'd say they're in the right sector. There's more money to be made in musicals than there is in, say, drama. Um, the problem is the budgets for musicals are considerably bigger. The, the budget for um, the recent production of Equus with um, the Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe was only 700 grand. Um, the budget for the recent production of The Lord of the Rings was 12.5 million. Now, Equus had the biggest budget for a drama ever in the West End, and that was 700 grand. Lord of the Rings is, is almost 20 times the amount. Musicals make more money than drama does. The budgets are higher, so the risks are higher, but they make more money. Nine of the top ten shows in the West End, by that I mean the shows that have been running for the longest time, nine of the top ten are musicals, and the only one that isn't is The Mousetrap, which is, you know, The Mousetrap's been running almost as long as The West End has been running. Right, so nine out of ten are musicals. Um, the budgets are big. How much money are you thinking about raising here how much money do you need well the budget for this show is 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 nothing like the 12 and a half million that uh, the lord of the rings cost the budget for this show is two and a half million the budget's been drawn up by a gentleman called peter wilkins who is our executive producer and he'll be our manager as well he'll he'll run the show on the day-to-day -day basis peter's uh put on something like 200 shows in the west end including uh i'll just quickly read out let me just turn to the page where his uh, biography is he's put on uh, Dustin Hoffman in Sir Peter Hall's production of The Merchant of Venice he put on Al Pacino in American Buffalo Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey in Jonathan Miller's Broadway production of Long Day's Journey Into Night and, and many many more so Peter knows exactly what he's doing and he's drawn up this budget of two and a half million of which 
almost a million is contingency and reserve money. In other words, the actual cost of putting on this show is only a million and a half, and a substantial portion is contingency and reserve, which you have to have because there's so much that can go wrong. Well, that's a lot of money, two and a half, and even one and a half that you're sure you're, sure you're going to spend when you start out. Um, what sort of theater do you have to put this in? Because obviously with a budget like that, you're going to have to sell quite a lot of, you're going to have to have quite a lot of seats to make it worthwhile. Yeah, we would be looking for a theatre of between 900 and 1,300 seats. That would be a kind of mid-sized theatre for musicals. The biggest theatre in the West End, I think it's the Palladium, but the the, the biggest theatres are a kind of 2,500, maybe as many as 3,000, and the smallest are about three or 400 seats. So we're looking at a, a mid-sized theatre. In a 2,000-seater theatre, this show would get lost, and similarly in a 300-seater, we couldn't earn any money. In, a, in an 1,100-seater, uh, in our budget, we've actually used the Savoy Theatre, which is an 1,104 seats as a, as a template. We would need to sell 40% of the seats on a weekly basis in, in order to break even on our weekly running costs. Um, if we did 40%, the show would stay afloat, but nobody would make any money. Well, 40%, okay. Let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute. I mean... How much are you selling these tickets for? Uh, it's an average price of £42.11. That's the average gross ticket price. I presume that's fairly much in line with uh, what tickets sell for these days. Yeah, it's the average ticket price, yeah. Okay, and that that would be the sort of average ticket price for uh, to, you know, a good West End musical these days, is that right? Yeah, e exactly, yeah. Actually, okay. I think it's slightly below average. Forty percent. Okay. Well, I mean, I've been to musicals, and the ones I've been to uh, in general have been pretty full. So um, how hard is it? Forty percent sounds like a pretty low number. Well, it, it, it's not bad. The, there was a production of a show called the Drowsy, the Drowsy Chaperone that came in that was a big hit on Broadway, and it came here. And... It was it was on in an 1,100-seater theatre, and they needed to do 75% business to break even. Now, they did 70% business, and they could only run for a few weeks before the, the producers made the decision that they weren't going to make any money and took the show off. Um, and, in fact, it will have lost a lot of money, more than compensated by the money they earned on Broadway. But, so, but if we'd done a show at 70% business we would have made a lot of money. In fact, our investors would have recouped their investment in 31 weeks, and uh, which is just over half a year. And from then on, you know, we, we would have been nicely in profit. Well, so that sounds very good. You've got a low break-even point. That's like a, a gold mine or something that's got a $250, uh, you know, Gold, cash cost for gold rather than $500 or something. I hadn't thought about that analogy, but yes, it is like that. Right. So so you, you, you've got a big advantage there, but you still got to get the punters in to the theater to, to, to pay for the tickets. You know, what's going to draw them in with this show? Well, that's a, a very important question. And um, most of the West End musicals at the moment, the first thing I'll say is, of that million and a half, well, of that two and a half million budget, one million is contingency. Of the other one and a half million, a third is has been budgeted for publicity. So a substantial amount of money has been put aside for publicity. 
if you look at most of the musicals in the West End at the mo- at the moment, they almost without excep- exception have some kind of brand awareness. Either they're a revival of a famous musical, like um, I don't know, like uh, The Sound of Music, or like Joseph, or like Oliver, or they're what's called a jukebox musical. In other words, they're a musical that's trading off the success of a famous pop group, like We Will Rock You is about Queen, or Mamma Mia about ABBA. Or perhaps like Billy Elliot or Mary Poppins or Dirty Dancing, they were a film. But they all have some kind of existing brand awareness. We don't have that, except for the fact, except for the subject of our musical. Now, this is a musical about vacies, evacuees during World War Two. It's about two boys, Jack and Terry, Terry being my dad, it's a true story, who were sent from their homes in South London they had little lab- to, to escape German bombing. They had no idea where they were going. Their parents had no idea where they were going. They were put on a train with labels tied around their neck with their names on, and they were sent off, and they were sent to Cornwall, as it turned out. Now, many Vakis had a horrible experience, but Dad calls it his second childhood. He, he, was a, he had an extremely happy experience down in Cornwall. He was, they got off the train, they were sent into the village hall, and they were picked at random by a bunch of villagers going, I'll have that one there, I'll have that one there. And uh, Dad and his brother were picked by this old Welsh coal miner and his wife. Uh, he was um, formerly a coal miner, then he was a soldier in the trenches in World War One. And uh, now he was a plate layer on the Great Western Railway. He, in World War One, he was in a regiment called the Welsh Bantams, and they were all under five foot. And they came up against the Prussian Guard, who were all over six foot. And they were involved in a famous battle, which was the Mammoth's Wood Massacre, of which only 17 survived. Uh, Robert Graves, the poet, wrote about it. And this man, Uncle Jack, went back to his village in, Corm- in uh, Wales, and... He was the only man that went back, and it was so much for them that they ended up having to leave their own village, and they ended up down in Cornwall. And he was now training his son, Gwyn. He had that Welsh love of singing, and he was training his own son, Gwyn, to be a singer in order that Gwyn would escape the life of drudgery that he had had. And, of course, Gwyn, during the course of the play, goes off to fight in World War II in, in, in Sicily and is eventually killed in action. And you kind of get the whole the whole story of World War Two uh, through the eyes of these two kids and through the eyes of the of the village. The the point I was trying to get to, I, I went off on one a bit there. I do apologise. Is that the subject? If this evacuation of kids from the cities in the UK, there were three million children evacuated, and most British people will have a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt who who this evacuation happened to it's a huge huge subject and that if you like is our brand awareness right well i mean you've got you've got a natural audience there um and it's a gripping story i mean i i think i, I you told me that it had been turned into a play for radio and was very successful in that format um can you say a little bit about that yeah, okay. The um it was first written as a radio play and it was broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and uh um BBC World Service in 1987 and it won the Giles Cooper Radio Player of the Year award and it was broadcast a record amount of times and received the highest level of listener response that anyone in the BBC radio department could remember, including bizarrely letters from Germany from German people who'd been evacuated to escape English bombing. 
Um, Dad then spent most of the 90s trying to get this made into a film. That didn't happen, although it got some... It, I mean, it, it nearly did, but it didn't. And this gentleman, Jeremy James Taylor, who is RAD, um, who's an old friend of Dad, uh, had been nagging Dad for years and years to turn it into a stage musical. And um, one time they were playing golf down in the West Country and the proprietor of the local theatre said to them, I say, have you two chaps got a, got a project for me? a little bit in jest. This is in the clubhouse after a golf match, and Dad and Jeremy looked at each other and said, well, actually, we do. And the stage musical was born and subsequently commissioned. Well, that's that's obviously a, a very gripping story with, with an audience, uh, you know, receptive, the big audience that will be very receptive to it. But you're talking about a musical here, Dom. What about the music? Well, uh, <laughs> the music is is extremely important. There are examples of musicals where the musical music isn't actually very good. If you go and see Billy Elliot, Billy Elliot is a brilliant story, but the music, written by Elton John, who is you know has written some fantastic songs in his time, the music for Billy Elliot isn't that good. We think the music for this is very good, and in fact, after this interview, uh, I'm going to hand you over to Dad, and Dad's going to kind of narrate the story of the show and play some of the music, so you can hear it for yourselves and judge for yourselves. I will just say the two people that have composed the music, one is Gordon Clyde, he spent a lifetime in musical theatre, he's now sadly passed away. The other gentleman that composed the music is John Altman, who has won virtually every award going and has played with everyone from from Jimi Hendrix to Bob Marley to to uh, to Eric Idle. In fact, his most famous song uh, is was sung by Eric Idle at the end of Life of Brian, um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Uh, John's also won Emmy Awards, BAFTA Awards, Trick Awards. He's won virtually everything going. Um, so we've got a strong team there. And I understand that Dad's um, talking at the moment to Richard Stilgo, who wrote Cats with Andrew Lloyd Webber and also The Phantom of the Opera. And I think Richard might be writing a couple of songs for us too. So if, if we get Richard on board, that, 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 that would be very strong. Well, that's, that's terrific. And I, I think, you know, I did read somewhere that uh, a piece of advice in investing in the theatre in West End is uh, don't back the horse, back the stable. I mean, there's more than just, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a document which is a musical document. You need all the right people. It sounds like you've got them here. Um, so, I, I, but what's next? I mean, what you've got uh, a plan to raise some money here. How's that going to? What's the timetable? Well, what's next is we we need to raise two and a half million quid. Once we raise that, we go ahead and we try and get the show on. If we don't raise the full amount, we we can't attempt to put it on. That's a famous mistake that people make. And so, in fact, we've put it as, as a clause of our contract that any money that gets invested in this is put into a ring-fenced account and cannot be spent until we've raised the full two and a half million. And only then can it be spent uh, on an actual production of the show. In other words, we can't spend the money trying to raise the rest of them. We can't spend some of the money trying to raise the rest of the money, um, which is a famous mistake, not just in theatre, but in any business. So... The only risk to investors' money is the show itself. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I look for in a mining company when I invest in mining is I look for commitment from management, uh, from, from the people running the company. You and your dad are involved here. How much money are you putting into this yourself? A hundred grand. Dad and I have put in half of the seed money. 
there's that if 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 this the rest of the money doesn't get made that seed money gets lost uh and in this next round we're putting in 100 grand right so that plus the the time and quite a lot of time and effort over the years is you know pretty substantial commitment if this show oh, doesn't it, work Mike, in in terms of dad's commitment to this it's it's basically his lifetime's work <laughs> he's been right. working on it since about 1986 off and on. Right. So if this if this show doesn't doesn't work, it doesn't go forward. You, you're actually going to feel some pain as well. So you're going to be very working very hard to make this a success for for yourselves and and for the investors. We'll we'll die broken men. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> want to see that happen. But uh, right. Well, you've got a, a show here. You mentioned this is about your your, your father and his brother when they were young. Um, that sounds like you're going to have some kids in the show, maybe quite a lot of them. Uh, 20 kids, 20 kids, 20 adults. Well, kids are hard to manage. I mean, I heard somewhere that, uh, you know, never never go on stage with a, you know, with a dog or a child. Yeah, never work with children or animals. Yes. The uh, people, the expression never work with children or animals, people think it's because children or animals are, are difficult. The reason that that expression has come around, never work with children or animals, is because children or animals upstage you. Because <laughs> they're more winning on stage than, than, than adults are. But how are you gonna, how are you gonna manage these kids? It's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big job. Uh, it's not just 20 kids, it's actually 60 kids. You need three sets of kids. So that's 60 kids. Um, but as I say, Jeremy James Taylor, who's our AD, is was the founder of the National Youth Music Theatre and ran it for 27 years. Um, there's nobody that's more experienced working with and managing kids than he is. And, and what, are kids a good thing to have in a musical? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we looked back at some statistics and we've tried to find an example of a musical with kids that has failed. And we could only find one which was a show called Children of Eden a few years ago. And the team behind that was, it was, there was nobody substantial behind it in the, in the management, if you like. There was nobody with any kind of track record. But in terms of kids, musicals with kids that have succeeded, Oliver, The Sound of Music, um, Mary Poppins, Billy Elliot, Annie, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Bugsy Malone, there's another. Well, uh, you know, and we we we've heard of all those, and so we're all, we're talking about a musical here, and one that has, uh, you know, many or most of the uh, elements that you would expect in success. But w what happens if it does really take off? Let's look at the upside here. What what happens, you know, to the music? What happens to the show if it becomes very popular on the West End? Okay, first the downside. The downside is you lose all your money. The upside is that you get a hit and it runs for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, we have a an, an investor who put money into the original production of Cats and she earned her annual, she earned every year for 21 years, she took home an annual dividend of more than her initial investment. And on top of that, she's still earning money now from various residuals. If this show is a hit and it goes on to be made into a film, investors will take home 60% of anything the production company makes from ticket sales uh, 
of this production. It would also take home 60% of anything the production company makes from future productions, which might be tours abroad, Broadway, Canada, Australia, in translation, in repertory, in rep, on tour. It will take home 60% of anything the production company makes uh, from, an, from the sale of any film and TV rights, from any music rights. So, for example, if it gets played on the radio, the production company might make, you know, 3p, of which the, the uh, investors will make uh, 60%. And also, they will make 60% of anything the production company makes on merchandising. You know, that might be T-shirts, DVDs, CDs, mugs, figurines, you know, there's programs. Uh, these are all areas where investors can make money. Sometimes what happens is that uh, um, the sh they don't break even on the show itself. They maybe recoup 80% of their money of the show itself. And then the spin-offs complete the recoupment and give them some profit. Sometimes the spin-offs make you the big money. Sometimes the spin-offs make you no money at all. There's no way of knowing how big or small they're going to be. Right. Well, can you just maybe look into that mechanism for a second and explain a little bit more detail? Two and a half million pounds is spent on the show. One and a half actually spent the rest of these contingencies. Uh, yeah. When the money starts flowing, who gets it? How much? Okay, when the money starts flowing, the, you have to make your weekly running costs. Anything you take over and above your weekly running costs goes to paying back investors. Once investors are paid back, then the money is split 60-40 between investor and production company. In the States, they do it 50-50, but here it's 60-40. The investors are effective providing a high-risk loan here. They get their money back after that profits get split. That, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. Right, and those profits could come from the show itself, and they could they could come from the various the various spinoffs. But what about That's the right. timetable here? I mean, you know, as I said to you before, I'm planning to put some money into this, um, and you know, you'll be getting my check over the next few weeks. Um, you know, what's how long are we going to have to wait before we see a show? Well. One of the clauses in the contract says, once we've raised the full two and a half million, we have to put on a show within a year or money gets returned to investors plus some interest. Um, so if we successfully raise the two and a half million by June, then we would have to put on a show by next June. In reality, we would like to put on a show, the show to go on either in the spring or in the autumn to open, because that's just ties in best with school holidays. When do you book the time. When do you book the theater? Well, it's a it's a it's what's called the shifting sands. You don't know which theater you're going to get. There are various individuals who book the theaters, and you have to liaise with them. And it pretty much depends on what else is coming off. Well, I think one of the interesting elements of this show, and I think the music will be heard later on, is basically most most of the work has been done. I mean, you haven't got the cast yet, but you know you. You've got the music. You've got the, the that story. happens later on. Yeah. So I suppose you have to have the theater, but be pretty sure you're going to have one before you go out and start hiring people to, to join the cast. Yeah, I mean, you the, the things kind of happen in sync. You kind of decide that you're going on in the uh, spring once you've got your capitalization, and then you start casting and you start rehearsing. And by the time you get into rehearsal, you should know which theater you're going to have. So... Cash today, cash over the next few weeks, few months maybe. Um, show sometime middle towards the end of 2009. 
more likely. Uh, yes, spring two thousand and nine is the most likely. Spring two thousand nine. Well, that's not very far away. I should no. I should book my flight. <laughs> right. So that's the show. Um, I think you have some music for us. I do. I'll hand you over to Dad in just a moment. I will just say, if you want to find out more, uh, I'll put a link up on the on the web page. But kissesonapostcard.com is the name of the website. Kissesonapostcard.com. Right, and I'd like to invite people who are interested in the subject to come and visit Global Edge Investors, learn a bit more there, and please ask us some questions. Learn more about what this project is. Learn more about investing in West End theater. Great. Well. Mike, <laughs> thanks very much for asking the questions, and uh, I'll talk to you soon about a, a more gold or or stock-related subject. Or even uranium. <laughs> there you go, even uranium. Michael Hampton, thank you very much. I don't. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. Okay, now it's time to hand you over to my dad, Terence Frisbee, who's going to tell you about some of the music from Kisses on a Postcard. Thank you, Dominic. Over 85% of the music in this show is original, composed by Gordon Clyde and John Altman. But occasionally we've taken music from World War II and adapted and developed it for our own dramatic purposes. Here's an example. John Altman takes this well-known farewell song and delves underneath to the heartbreak that's really there. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. Not a tear, mother dear, don't you cry. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. Cheerio, here I go, riding high. Give me a smile, I can keep all the while in my heart while I'm away. Till we meet once again, you and I. Wish me luck as you wave me beginning of World War II, when I was seven and my brother Jack was eleven, along with millions of other children, we were being evacuated from London to escape the Blitz. Our mother had an idea which turned it all into an adventure for us. She gave us a stamp postcard to send back to her. We were to write the address of where we ended up on the card and then to put kisses on it. This was our code, our own private secret service code. One kiss if it was nasty, and she would come and bring us straight back home. Two kisses if it was okay, and three kisses if it was nice. Then she would know. Fifty of us vackies ended up in a tiny village in Cornwall. We were herded into the village hall and handed out to whoever would take us. We were picked by a Welsh ex-miner and his wife. Everyone called them Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack. They lived in a tiny cottage right beside the railway line with their soldier son, Gwyn. This song, by Gordon Clyde, 
takes place when Jack and Terry are left alone in their bedroom that night, trying to decide how to use their code. How many kisses? I vote three. What would Mum and Dad think of it here? Dunno. No electricity? They wouldn't like that. I don't care. No lavatory? I don't care. Outside love, all they have. I can't go in an outside love. I don't mind, I don't care. What if it's freezing cold out there? That's what the pot's for, don't you see? I vote one. I vote three. Just one bed, got to share, all squashed up in it. I don't care. Kisses on a postcard we must write. Something we've got to do tonight. Kisses on a postcard, what'll they show? Only mum is going to know. What about Gwyn? Gwyn's not bad, even though you can see he's mad. Auntie Rose, what do you say? She says weird things, but she's okay. Not Uncle Jack, though he plays rough. Pulled my hair, called me scruff. Kisses on a postcard, what do we do? I still say three. Well, I say two. Kisses on a postcard, three, two, one. Better be quick or it won't get done. If we were less than three, Mum and Dad will think it's rotten here. She said they'll be worried. What about the trains? And the station, right next to us. Yeah, that's terrific. Hey, wait, I've just remembered. Hens. What about hens? Eggs, stupid. Real eggs, not that horrible powdery stuff. Eggs for you, eggs for me, eggs for breakfast, supper and tea. Poached or baked, scrambled or fried, or boiled with soldiers on the side. What do you say now? What's your score? Alright, three. I say four. You can't! Why not? Mum only said up to three. But don't you see? The more kisses we put, the more happy they're going to be. Yeah. It's terrific here, really, isn't it? Like be on holiday, only there's no sea. We don't have to stop at four. Let's do a hundred! Yeah! Kisses on a postcard, one by one. All around the edges, this is fun. Kisses on a postcard, squashed up tight. Telling Mum that we're all right. We ringed the card with kisses. Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack's son, Gwyn, was posted abroad to fight in North Africa, and we boys pestered Uncle Jack to tell us about the First World War, his war. He went from the coal mines to be a soldier in the trenches. This song tells the story of his hard life. Seventeen of us survived. We were half buried in a big shell hole in the ground. Kept us warm. Kept us alive. Ashes to ashes, mud to mud, rain in your boots, ice in your blood. Dig yourself in and keep your head down. There's life and there's death in a hole in the ground. I went down the mine for my wages. A place where you don't see the sun They send you below in their cages 
And don't bring you up till you've done Hole in the ground provides your daily bread Hole in the ground will see your children fed Who cares that you're digging someone else's coal Just thank your lucky stars you're in a hole Then out of the mines to the front line Where death's on the cards and life is cheap The trench that you dig is your lifeline So make sure you dig Uncle Jack goes on to say his fate awaits us all Even our leaders That's something even they can't control Cause we all end up in some After the invasion of evacuees that turned this village upside down, they had a second invasion. The Americans. A whole regiment of black American soldiers was billeted on the village. Most of the villagers had never seen a black man. And, to the delight of us Vakis, they brought their music with them. This was their answer to our constant, Got any gum, chum? Give me five clive, give me five clive, give me five clive, you know it ain't nothing but a drive clive. Give me five clive, give me five clive, give me five clive, you know it ain't nothing but a drive clive. So let's get in a taxi to London town, show them how to kick the old gong around. Before long, all the children, and then the whole village, have joined in. Give me five clients. One of the Vaki girls, Elsie Plummer, aged 13 when she arrived, taught me the facts of life with secret, thrilling games of doctor. Then, to my disappointment, Elsie moved on to older boys, soldiers, and finally the Americans. She was 16 by then. Soon Elsie was heavily pregnant. In this song, she starts as large as a house and then sheds her pregnancy in a dream sequence. This is a big number with a dance for Elsie and the Americans, and here is a shortened version of it. Three such lovely boys, they're done from Illinois, and Slick is from Louisiana State. Larry's from the West, but which one was the best? I really couldn't say they all were great. One will be so glad he's gonna be a dad. I could just remember who was Larry Don or Slick, the one who did the trick. It could have been all three for all I knew. Ain't me, not this boy, no dice. 
either Don or Slick or Larry. I'd make a really lovely G.I. Bride. But which one do I pick from Larry, Don or Slick? I'm sure they'd really like me to decide. So long, kid. Adios. Arrivederci. He used to get a scolding from his mammy. But now you'll hear his mammy proudly say, My boy has done his bit for Uncle Sammy. Chocolate soldier from the USA. Lovely soldier from the U.S.A. But the Americans leave for D-Day, and Elsie is all alone and going to be sent away to a home for unmarried mothers. Uncle Jack stops this in a tremendous public row in the village church, and he and Auntie Rose take in Elsie and her baby in place of Jack and Terry, who are returning to London. Then Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack's son, Gwynne, is killed in Sicily. She has this lament to sing about her three lost sons, and in her imagination, Gwyn joins in. followed the whole course of the Second World War, two boys and a girl growing up and the tragedy of their foster parents. The melody of this next song is used throughout in different contexts, but here is an extract of the final version when the boys are leaving. It's sung to them by Auntie Rose, Uncle Jack and Elsie. Just remember these two things, boys. Life's not fair and don't be late. Plenty of time for living your life. That hole in the ground can wait. Just remember, you'll remember when you're old and grey. How you found your other world when you were far away. Just like you, we were sad to say goodbye to the home we love. Just like us, you were soon to find good friends beside you to help and guide you. Just remember, we'll remember how we shared those years. Days of sadness, days of gladness, laughter and joy and tears. During the action of the show, 
the children decide to give a concert for their American guests and entertain them with this patriotic number. Long ago, grown-ups say Happy sounds would always fill the air Spreading cheer far and near Ringing out their message everywhere Bells are silent now. When will they ring once more? Storm clouds hide our island now, dark with the shadow of war. Once those bells rang everywhere, calling good people to pray. Joyful music filled the air. And the whole village turns out to join in the number. Thank you for listening. Those were a few extracts from the many songs in the show. For more information, go to kissesonapostcard.com. Kisses on a postcard squashed up tight, telling Mum that we're all right. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.